The Revolt of 2020 by Patrick Johnston. Copyright 2011 by Dr. Patrick Johnston. Read by Daniel Meyer. By kind permission of the author, this reading of The Revolt of 2020 is available for free distribution. Stay tuned at the end of this reading for more information and links to additional resources. Chapter 24. Austin, Texas. Elijah, Natalie, and Jared were exchanging theories about the voice that Elijah overheard on the phone when he had called Natalie's house. They sat in Elijah's black van in the parking lot of Applebee's, comfortably unaware of the fact that Nat's apartment was being raided by the FBI at that very moment. What was that? Elijah turned his attention to the radio and turned the volume up. What did you hear? His sister asked. I thought I heard David's name. CNN was giving the scoop on the breaking political story. The man who is the prime suspect for the bombing of the National Reproductive Rights Convention in April has finally been discovered. He was seen in front of the Texas State House talking with Governor Henry Adams and his newly appointed press secretary, Robert Boniface. A political intern who overheard some of the conversation had this to say. Okay, the broadcast cut to the intern. I saw them walking together and talking to each other. They seemed pretty friendly to each other to me. What were they talking about? The reporter asked the intern. Something about stopping the federal government. He also said something derogatory about minorities. I couldn't hear everything, just bits and pieces. State Representative Richard Dawson from Dallas remembered seeing the suspect inside the assembly during the governor's speech. Sure, I remember him. How could I forget that poster of a bloody naked baby he brought into the assembly? It verged on pornography. Does it surprise you that the suspect, Governor Adams, and his press secretary were seen conversing in front of the state house after the governor's speech, the reporter asked? It wouldn't surprise me a bit to discover that Governor Adams is the very heart of the anti-government conspiracy that is sweeping the nation in a grip of terror and fear. The smear campaign had begun. Henry Adams was stiff-arming Margaret Brighton. The government's undercover spin machine, the mainstream media, was in full swing to turn the tide of public opinion against him. Elijah glanced at Natalie through the rearview mirror and then looked around him suspiciously. We've got to stay out of the public eye. Nat, our pictures could be shown up on TV any minute. Our pictures, she said? For hiding the most wanted terrorist in American history. Nat, take your battery out of your cell phone now. What? Why? They can triangulate you. I told you, the feds bugged your phone line. They know that the Jamesons were living in your apartment. Now we just used your credit card at the restaurant, so we've got to get out of this parking lot. Elijah started the van and made his way out of the parking lot into the road. We need to get going with our heads down. Stay on back roads. Misdirection's key. This is just too hard to believe, Jared complained. Natalie became fearful. Well, where are we going to go? We can go home, can't we? An anxious grimace came upon Natalie's face when she realized the answer to her question. I don't see how, Nat. But I'm a full-time student. If you go back to your apartment, you'll be arrested. For what? For hiding the Jamesons in your home. I'll just say I didn't know who David was. Elijah looked at Jared, who sat beside him in the passenger seat. Jared shrugged. We can't go back, Elijah, but she might be able to as long as we cut ties and she tells them everything she knows. Elijah took a deep breath. All right, Nat. We go our separate ways, and when they question you, you just tell the truth about everything, except you omit the fact that you knew the Jamesons were wanted for a crime. Tell them that I was acting strange like I was hiding something. Tell them that the Jamesons were unusual people and that you were unaware of their extremist illegal views. Tell them that you want to help them catch us right-wing extremists. You won't know where we are anyway. If you can do all that, then you might stay in school. Natalie shook her head and her eyes welled up with tears. Listen to me, Natalie. Don't get arrested being a hero. Don't preach to them. If they ask for your views on abortion, refuse to indulge them. Refuse. Or tell them you have changed your mind and then don't elaborate. Say what you must and go to school. Don't let them provoke you into preaching your views on controversial subjects to them. They're going to lay a net at your feet and try to tease you into walking into it. The hate crime laws won't apply to you unless you are actively promoting the views they consider hateful. Don't. Don't lie, but you are under no obligation to spill your guts to your persecutors. 
Jesus kept his mouth shut when interrogated by Herod, and you can too. All right, she said, wiping a tear. I can do that. Elijah dropped Natalie off at a friend's house, and her friend dropped her off in the parking lot of her apartment. She got out of the car and looked around as her friend drove off. Her heart throbbed with fear of the unknown. There were no police cars, no unusual vehicles. Her front curtains were pulled just as she had left them. She walked to the front door and inserted the key. Before she could twist the doorknob, a voice startled her. Natalie Slate? She turned to face a young man who had his right hand resting on a holstered gun. In his other hand, he held a pair of handcuffs. Put your hands on top of your head, the federal agent said calmly. What did I do? Her voice trembled as she complied with the agent's instructions. She heard a neighbor's door open, and she turned her head to see her fellow student, Vanessa, step onto her front porch. Vanessa! Vanessa's eyes met Natalie's, and then she turned and went back inside, slamming the door behind her. The feds must have already inoculated Vanessa against her. Fear gripped Natalie's mind, and she knew her life would never be the same. The agent walked up to her, frisked her, and cuffed her hands behind her back. Natalie Slate was facing her seventh straight hour of interrogation when her will began to weaken. The threats and browbeating were crippling her resolve to protect her brother and feign ignorance about the charges against David Jameson and Jared Keaton. Oh, please, I don't believe that, Natalie mumbled. She held her stomach, which had cramped into a knot. Her throat was dry and her sweaty hands trembled. She sat on a chair in front of a table while different federal agents took turns asking her the same questions over and over again in different ways. She was mentally exhausted. There's no way. We have eyewitnesses, Miss Slate. Hard evidence. I don't believe you. I know my brother better than anybody, and there's no way he would do something like that. David Jameson, I don't know. The agent stood, leaned forward till he was within twelve inches of Natalie's face, and gazed into her eyes. Fine, Natalie Slate, but I'm giving you two choices. You can help us apprehend them so that we can question them further, and in doing so you will help save lives. Or you can go to prison for the rest of your life as an accomplice in their acts of terrorism. The choice is yours. All right, I'll let you know where they are when I find out. We want to know where he could be now. We have to find him to discover what he knows. He may not even know how he can help us right now. We need him to stop future terrorist attacks. Fine, I'll help you if I can. The interrogator made a mental note, finally a move backward. We have the momentum now. I can give you some numbers of his friends, Nat said, maybe some places he might be, but I want to go to school. I don't want my career to be hindered in any way by all this. Very good, said the agent, backing up and smiling at her. We want you in school, Natalie. A nudge in the direction of her momentum is just what she needs, thought the agent. She's weak. One more thing, the second agent asked. Tell us what you think about the president's policies. Natalie shuddered. What? She gulped hard. What do you mean? The agent smiled. She knows what we mean. She just doesn't want to tell us the truth. What do you think about abortion? What do you think about her gun control policies? He asked matter-of-factly, as if he had asked it hundreds of times before. She closed her eyes and hung her head. She's going to do what she's going to do. The agent nearest Natalie moved his face close to hers again. That's a pretty good non-answer, Miss Slate, but you're not going to go unless we get a direct, honest answer. I don't have a problem with her policies. Predictable. If we take the moral high ground now, then she'll break. You liar! You call yourself a Christian? Thou shalt not bear false witness, your lord commanded. Do I need to quote from the blogs where you posted? Do I need to quote from the articles you turned into your professors or from your classmates? Do I need to bring Vanessa Truman in here and... That's my answer. You have no choice but to tell us the truth, Miss Slate, if you ever want to leave. All right, she took a deep breath. I haven't been too friendly toward her policies in the past, but... She paused. Help her a bit. Say what she believes and just get her to nod. But what? Just tell us what you believe. Abortion's murder, euthanasia's murder, and you want Americans to keep their guns, right? No! 
Yes, just admit it. You know it's the truth. Profess ideological similarity with her. She wants a friend now. Be what she needs to get her to be what you need. I have pro-life sentiments myself, Ms. Slate, but I've got to turn this form in, and he shook the clipboard vigorously with both his hands. By golly, I'm not putting your contradictions and lies on it. Make her feel sorry for you. The agent sat down across from her and waited until she made eye contact with him. You know that it'd be embarrassing for me to turn this form in with lies on it. It'll make me look like an idiot. All right, then, she breathed. All right. All right, what? Do you agree that abortion is murder of an innocent human being, or don't you? Of course. Doesn't science show that? Listen, I'll keep my opinions to myself. The agent closest to Natalie smiled and nodded at the other agent. You'll not be going back to school anytime soon, Miss Slate. Why? You can't punish me for just holding an opinion. Oh, yes, we can. Especially when you're as brave as you've been with your opinions, said the other agent. And especially when you've been housing wanted anti-abortion terrorists in your house for weeks. You're a threat to national security. Natalie's tears began to fall freely. You told me that you had pro-life sentiments. Did I say that? You must have misunderstood me. The agent shared a victorious smirk. You're not exactly going to be punished, Miss Slate. Just re-educated. After you effectively complete the NEA re-education course to the satisfaction of course leaders, and after you help us catch your terrorist brother, said the other agent, then you'll be able to go back to school. Natalie sobbed with her head in her hands. She stopped long enough to ask a question. How long does your class take? For most, twelve weeks. For you, we've seen your library. Years. The agents laughed as Natalie began to weep at their exaggerations. You help us find your brother and David Jameson, and we'll see that they go easy on you. She looked depressed to you, the first agent asked the second. Absolutely. Delusional, too. The first agent jotted down a few notes, and they stood up to leave the room, leaving Natalie sobbing pitifully. A psychiatrist would enter in about twenty minutes and would take the history required for her involuntary commitment into the psychiatric wing of the county hospital. Because of her grief over her circumstances and her belief that God speaks to her heart, his findings would confirm three diagnoses. Acute major depressive disorder, paranoid schizophrenia in an acute delusional state, and after learning of how she was spanked as a child, he added the diagnosis of post-traumatic stress disorder. She was a sick woman, and the government-appointed physician was there to help. The psychiatrist placed her on an antipsychotic, a mood stabilizer, and an antidepressant. It was a chemical mind restraint, and the combination worked. She was soon transferred to the psych wing of the nearest federal penitentiary. Her stay would not be short, but the combination of brainwashing, psychotherapy, antipsychotics, and fear would do their job. She'd receive the required re-education as an inpatient in a one-on-one -on -one setting. She would make a great thesis for an aspiring educator's doctorate degree. Natalie would leave a new woman, mentally numbed and intellectually complicit with the catechism of the New World Order. Austin, Texas The members of Henry Adams' cabinet looked like they hadn't slept a wink. Troubled, shifting gazes asked the questions to which no one had any answers. So much had happened in the past three days. The terrorist attacks, the president's recent terrorist fighting proposals, the mysterious Columbus bombers' connection to Henry Adams, and the allegations in Josh Davis's much-publicized article were on everyone's minds. The last member of the cabinet walked in and took his seat. Good to have you here, Mr. Markison, Boniface greeted him. Sorry, Terry Markison replied, regretting his tardiness. Adams began to pass around eight-and-a-half by eleven-inch glossy pictures of David Jameson around the room. Anybody know anything about this David Jameson character? He wasn't one for beating around the bush. Heads shook back and forth as they stared blank-faced at their governor, who looked ten pounds thinner than the last time they had seen him. I remember him, said Robert Boniface, who sat to the governor's left. He held the photograph up in front of him, staring at it. What do you remember? Boniface sighed as he recalled David's words to him on the sidewalk in front of the state house. He gave me a message from God. 
A word from God? Terry Markson was heard to say over the mumbling and whispers at the table. You must be joking. Nope. What did he say? Boniface folded his hands on the table in front of him. He told me to stay humble. He told me to resist flattery and refuse to be distracted from my mission with the governor. He glanced at Henry Adams next to him, who was staring at him wide-eyed. You could hear a pin drop in the room. That's it. After a moment, Terry Markison remarked, And that was his message from God? Sounds more like a string of fortune cookies. Everyone laughed except the governor and Boniface. Were you thinking of leaving or something? asked Governor Adams. I had received an invitation to do a conservative talk show on CBS television and satellite radio. They offered me a million dollars for a three-year contract. Wow, someone exclaimed. They knew Boniface handled the media well and was articulate, but was he that good? And you didn't take it? I was going to take it, but then I met David Jameson. The timing was perfect. I called immediately and canceled. Well, thanks for staying on, Adams said. I'm afraid we can't match his offer. I'm laying up my treasure in heaven, brother, answered Boniface. Thanks. Thank David Jameson. Wait a minute, said Terry Markson. This guy's the only suspect for the act of terrorism that killed... I don't believe it, said Boniface, interrupting. I think that Margaret Brighton will go to any lengths to blame a pro-lifer for that explosion. I tend to believe Josh Davis's story. I think that explosion was an accident, and Brighton's trying to justify all of her unconstitutional mandates. But there are a lot of unanswered questions about the Davis article, Markson protested, his arms folded across his chest. The president said, Hold on, the governor put up both palms to stop the conversation. We're not going down that rabbit trail right now. David Jameson is wanted for a crime, and we're being painted with his brush because of my defense of the unborn. That's it. We are suffering for doing what's right. We're not going to defend this guy because we're not going to get distracted from our mission. We're going to incarcerate him and put him on trial. He's innocent until proven guilty in a court of law, but he's wanted for a terrible crime nonetheless. He will never get a trial, Boniface commented, aware of the consequences of the president's suspension of habeas corpus. He will if we catch him first, said the governor. It'll be a federal trial, not a state trial, the new state's attorney Jason Stratton reminded them. He's not wanted for any state crimes. The room was silently contemplative for a moment as they all quietly considered their options. Have you ever seen this fellow previous to that time? Somebody asked Boniface. Nope, he answered, and I haven't seen him since. You should remember him too, Governor. He asked to speak with you, and you two talked for about a minute after your speech in the State House. The Governor's eyes lit up, and then he glanced at the picture again. I do remember. What did he say to you? asked Terry Markison. The Governor's eyes were fastened on Markison as David Jameson's words echoed in his mind. What did he say? He said that there was a Judas Iscariot close to me who could be my undoing. A Judas Iscariot? You mean a traitor? That's how I took it. The governor was deep in thought. Maybe we can indict him for a state crime of some sort, capture him before the feds and keep him out of their grasp, put him in witness protection. Boniface spoke up. I think we should come out in full support of David Jameson's capture and trial. Maybe he is a domestic terrorist, or maybe he's just a persecuted pro-lifer like many Brighton has already imprisoned. Regardless, he should be captured and we need to put more law enforcement into it. We'll do it, the cabinet member responsible for highway patrol nodded and typed a message into his laptop. We cannot sacrifice our ultimate mission on lesser objectives, said Boniface. We've got more important things to fight Brighton on than the innocence of someone in whose character we are not confident. One way or another, there will be no suspension of the Bill of Rights in Texas, said Governor Adams. This David Jameson should get his chance to defend himself in front of a jury of his peers. The president didn't give us those rights and she can't take them away. With those determined words, everybody understood that the political conflict between Governor Adams and President Brighton would only get worse. Thank you for listening to this reading from The Revolt of 2020. This chapter was read by Daniel Meyer and engineered by Park Leacock. The Revolt of 2020 and its sequels, The American Tyranny of 2020, and The Uncivil War of 2020, 
are available for purchase at docjohnstonnovels.com. That's docjohnstonnovels.com. O Lord, turn us back to you. Forgive our sins and heal our land.